we have come as far as verse 22 in Mark 14, where it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he had just completed a meal. Uh, They're eating here still, but they're, they're conducting this meal. And he had just told them, um, one of you will betray me. He had told them these things earlier that he would be betrayed and the events that would happen. But he has just come to the point of telling him, it's, it's one of you, one of the twelve, is the one who betrays me. As we discussed last week, this meal they're eating is not the regular Passover meal. This is the day before Passover. And that's uh, from my perspective, I think we know this from the crucifixion scene. As the evening approaches, the bodies must be removed from the crosses before the beginning of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the first day of unleavened bread, a high Sabbath, uh, as we have seen. This supper has some similarities to a Seder meal, which some say began in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, One source that I looked at said they listed 12 similarities between what Jesus does here celebrating the Last Supper and a traditional Seder meal. Even the the modern Seder meal has uh, some similarities. And um, at the meal, the Father would take three loaves of unleavened bread, which are like matzahs or cracker type, and he would put them in a linen envelope a three-compartment envelope, and he would put the three pieces of bread in there. And then at some point during the evening, he would take out the middle piece and he would break it. And then some of it, you know, half of it would be hidden somewhere. And then uh, at the end of the meal, they would bring this out. And I think it was octocomen. I don't know. They have this word for the bread. And uh, what is it, Charlotte? Octocomen. And that's dessert. <laughs> and so they they take dessert with this piece of bread and the fourth cup of wine, which is the cup of redemption. And so as Jesus is sharing this, you know, take and eat. This is my body broken for you as he breaks breaks the bread and, and gives it to them. And then he, you know, passes the cup to them and says, this is my blood in, in the cup here. Uh, the Jews don't eat a lamb at the Seder. Uh, they have this shank bone. They did not think it was appropriate since the temple was destroyed. And most scholars think the Seder meal originated after 70 A.D. and destruction of the Second Temple. But some say it originated in and after the Babylonian captivity. For many Jews, probably most Jews today, Seder and Passover are synonyms. This is how they celebrate the Passover. Today, various Christian ministries will present a traditional Seder and liken it to the Last Supper. The cups, the bread, are all indicative of the giving of Jesus of his body and blood. So there are some fascinating correlations, like those wafers of unleavened bread. In any case, this is not the Passover meal that they're partaking of here. They were making preparations for the Passover meal 
But this meal was a day earlier than Passover. Uh, by my reckoning, it's Wednesday, Nisan 13, 30 A.D. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on this night and dies the next afternoon as the Lamb of God, our Passover Lamb. And this is when the uh, Passover lambs would be slain for the people that they would be partaking of. He says, take and eat, this is my body. Partake of my sacrifice for you. Drink from the cup, my blood of the new covenant. Jesus is not talking about the physical here, but the spiritual. When we take communion, we remember him, the reality of the giving of his body to take our iniquity upon himself, and the shedding of his blood, his death, to bring forth a new covenant of grace and life. In John chapter 6, Jesus was disputing with the 5,000 whom he had fed, at least a good portion of them. And in verse 35 of John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So he begins telling them what it means to partake of the bread of life. It's by coming to him, satisfies that spiritual hunger, that lack, and believing in him, which satisfies the thirst of the thirsty soul. Later in John 6:53 he says this Jesus says to them most assuredly I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you. Now um, within this context some of them began to say well how can he give us his flesh to eat his blood to drink he's talking about cannibalism you know because they were interpreting that in this way uh, that he was actually literally speaking this. Um He says in verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. How do you eat his flesh and drink his blood? You come to him. You believe in him. You partake of that sacrifice which took place upon his cross. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed, he says. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, he who feeds on me will live because of me. We, we feed on Jesus. This is the bread which came down from heaven, he says. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So if you partake of the bread of life, if you partake of Jesus, then he says you'll live forever. Now they were... Confused about this, thinking of his body and his blood. And Jesus here at the, at the Last Supper, he's saying, this is my body. Well, he, he's sitting there in his body. He's not doing transubstantiation. The scriptures know nothing of transubstantiation or consubstantiation or any other substantiation. He says, this is my blood. That was the cup of juice. He didn't change it into his, literally into his blood. And nobody else can do that. That's a fantasy and a fiction. There's, you know, the Catholic Church teaches that the priest and only the priest can do this uh, transformation of the bread into the body and the, the wine into the blood of Jesus. But the Scriptures know nothing of that. The Scriptures know nothing of a priesthood in the New Testament other than the priesthood of believers. There is no hierarchy or uh, clergy level such as that. 
Well, verse 63 of John, then Jesus says, of John 6, Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. You know, they could have taken him down from the cross and roasted him and eaten his body, and, and they could have gathered the blood in a cup and drank it, and it would have accomplished nothing. It wasn't, the physical was not what we're talking about. He says, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. So he says, I'm not going to drink of this wine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm thinking this is probably going to be at his marriage supper, marriage supper of the Lamb, when he celebrates his wedding um, with his bride and celebrating that new covenant that he talks about here. So it's not physical, it's spiritual. Salvation's by faith, believing in Jesus, coming to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The promised new covenant, not something new, but something newly instituted. In John, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, we find reference to this new covenant the Lord says He's going to bring into existence. In Jeremiah 31, 31, The Lord says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Not going to happen. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb, and then it shall turn toward Gulf. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. So he's going to establish this new covenant, he says, with who? With Israel. This is the fulfillment of what we're seeing here. Jesus instituted, or they talked about cutting a covenant. He instituted the new covenant through his cross. When they would cut a covenant, there had to be a sacrifice. And blood had to be shed. And, you know, we find uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that, that unilateral covenant where God said, sacrifice these animals, divide them up. And Abraham does this, and God passes between the pieces, down between the pieces. And this was how you would confirm a covenant. Both parties would walk between the pieces of these sacrifices. 
cutting a covenant. God was the only one who walked. It's a unilateral covenant with Abraham, and this is a covenant that's also being carried forward uh, for Israel. He cut the new covenant through his cross. In the future, all the Jewish people will enter into this covenant. They haven't at this point, uh, but this covenant in the future, when all Israel shall be saved, they will be entering into this same covenant. But only a remnant believed at this time and entered this covenant when Jesus created it. The majority of the nation would not enter because of unbelief. This opened the door for the Gentiles, who most of us are, I think. I say that because I know somebody has some Jewish blood. This opened the door for the Gentiles to enter this covenant along with the remnant of the Jewish nation. And there remains a remnant of Israel that have partaken of the new covenant today. Throughout history, there's been a remnant of Jewish believers who have partaken of this new covenant. Now, we Gentiles, we're not part of that covenant. But we are grafted into the new covenant that God instituted with Israel. We're allowed to be partakers of that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we enter into this covenant. We see this in Ephesians 2, reading in verse 11, he says to the Ephesians who were mostly Gentiles, he says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. You were being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hatred, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So in the world today, you have Jew and you have Gentile and you have those that are in the new covenant and made peace between Jew and Gentile. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So we become partakers of that covenant. Along with them, we're no longer strangers and pilgrims separated from them, Oh, we're still pilgrims. Yeah. We're no longer aliens from the commonwealth, stranger from the covenants of promise. We no longer are without hope and without God in the world by entering into this new covenant that was opened up to the Gentiles. We also see this spoken of in Romans chapter 11.
looking at verses 11 and 12, he says, I say then, have, have they stumbled, speaking of Israel, that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He's speaking of the future. When uh, their fullness is going to come and, and all of Israel is going to believe and going to be saved. Um, dropping down to verse 15, he says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit's holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, those who did not believe, and you being a wild olive tree, that's Gentiles, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. We owe a great debt to Israel and to the Jewish people. We can pay that by praying for them and giving them the gospel. Partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. He says, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay. <laughs> Got that. And then if we look in verse 25, you can read this entire passage. As a matter of fact, nine, uh, Romans 9 through 11 are all about this distinction of Jew and Gentile. and uh, Much of the book of Romans also speaks about this. In verse 25, he says, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the, the veil is going to be removed. The scales are going to fall from the eyes. And they're no longer going to experience that blindness. He says, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So we get grafted into this new covenant. And this is what we celebrate when we um, take communion, when we remember the Lord in communion. So uh, at this point, if the men would distribute the elements and we'll celebrate the feast. First Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul shares and says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. This is the night that we've been reading about. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, the Lord Jesus shared with Paul uh, more about this than we find in the Gospels. You know, And then it says, uh, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. So we're proclaiming that Jesus has died for sinners and we're proclaiming it until He comes because He is no longer dead. He was raised from the dead.
So, when they, this is verse 26, John, uh, Mark 14. I like John. I keep going to John all the time. Right? And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, Likewise. So they sing this hymn. Traditionally, this would have been uh, Psalm 118. But during the Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would sing Psalm 113 through uh, 118. Um, Psalm 118, we uh, read some of earlier, and this was related to Palm Sunday. In verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The day the cornerstone was rejected was the day that Jesus was crucified. This is the day. We'll rejoice. Save now, which is Hosanna. Save now, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so, you know, the people on Palm Sunday were shouting out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will not see him again until they, the Jewish people cry out again that same thing. So Jesus uh, says, you're, going to be, you're all going to be made to stumble. I'm going to strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from Zechariah 13. Verses 6 and 7, where it says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And uh, I think the King James says, In your hands. Um, and then there are some who translate this a different way. It says, Then he will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so Jesus quotes this part, I'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. He said, but after I've been raised up, I'll go before you into Galilee. So um, he speaks about the resurrection, which is to come. And of course, they don't get this at all. It's just like they don't hear it. He speaks of the resurrection before the crucifixion. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. And this gathering in Galilee that he's going to have. Jesus is already looking beyond the cross to the other side of death. He knows that he will be raised from the dead. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was looking beyond what he was going to suffer greater than any man has ever suffered. And he was seeing the joy that was set before him. That joy is you and me. The salvation that he was going to bring. Uh, Paul writes of this often to the churches. He says, you're my joy. 
seeing them in the Lord. And Peter says, of course, even if all these other guys are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Peter's confidence is in the flesh. He's got good intentions. He really means this. All the apostles follow his example. They all say, yeah, that's right. We're going to die with him. Remember when they were going, starting to go up to Jerusalem? I think it's in John that Thomas tells the other guys, let's go, we'll go up and die with him, you know, because they knew that there was danger ahead this last trip up to Jerusalem because they had been trying to kill Jesus for some time. The Spirit's willing, the flesh is weak, Jesus says in another place. How many, or Paul, I think, how many times we would do something for the Lord, but we fail because we pursue it in the flesh, in our own strength, rather than in the Holy Spirit. Alexander McLaren says, It is sometimes easier to bear a great load for Christ than a small one. Some of us could be martyrs at the stake more easily than confessors among sneering neighbors. And it is many times the small things that present the greatest difficulty. We're likely closer to the small things in our flesh than we are to the big issues. Now, this confidence in the flesh is a point of weakness. In 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul writes and says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so there's this confidence that they all have. And you know what are they really saying? They're saying, you know, Jesus, you're wrong about that. It's never good to have a difference of opinion than what Jesus says. So Jesus tells Peter uh, that he will before the rooster crows twice, deny him three times. He tells him this because Jesus does want Peter to return to him. Over in Luke 22, in this uh, same context, verse 29, <coughs> excuse me, verse 29, he says, I bestow upon you a kingdom, Jesus speaking, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He says, Peter, you know, you're going to fall, you're going to deny me, but when you return to me, you're going to be strengthening your brethren. That's my desire for you. And he says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Mark through Peter gives the most detail. The rooster will crow twice. And then Peter speaks more vehemently. You know, you can speak vehemently, but Peter goes beyond that. He speaks more vehemently. He was speaking vehemently before. It's very emphatic. How embarrassing, though, to disagree with Jesus, even insisting that he's mistaken. Does your opinion ever differ from Jesus' opinion? He wants our thinking to be brought in line with his own, but it's not natural. <laughs> the Spirit helps our weaknesses, as we're told in Romans 8.26. And we're to bring every thought captive to obedience to Him. 
as we're told in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He said we need to take up our cross daily and follow him, that is, dying to our self-thoughts and desires and being conformed to his image. So they come to a place called Gethsemane in verse 32. He says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, Gethsemane, the word means olive press. And so there's going to be some pressing going on in this garden. Um, this was on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And so there were a lot of, there still are a lot of olive uh, trees there on this slope. It's probably why it was called the Mount of Olives. But within the, the um, olive trees, or uh, why would that be a, a, a grove? Or, anyway, within this area, there was a, an olive press. And so they would press you know, the olives to get the oil out. So it was across, this was across the Kidron Valley from the Eastern Gate on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. So he takes these three that he's taken with him in other events. Uh, deeply distressed is, you know, he's heavy-hearted. And he says to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. I mean, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows it's approaching rapidly. And he knows when it will take place, so forth. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. The, the apostles seem to be oblivious to Jesus' distress or the causes of it. They treat this as any other approaching feast. And, by the way, he's always difficult to understand. You know, you know he says these things in parables and it's confusing and but Jesus' distress is not just about the physical suffering. This is tremendous in itself. But his distress is much more about the taking on of the sins of the world. Our sins, my sins, we can bring it down to the personal level, as Paul does when he says, He loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Suffering the wrath of God the Father on our behalf and on behalf of all. He paid the full price for all of humanity, whether they become redeemed or not. The Scriptures know nothing of a limited or partial atonement. He paid it all for all. If some reject the payment, that does not make, does that make it worthless? No. The, pa- the power of his sacrifice is a provision made for all. As we're told in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The acceptance of this sacrifice is voluntary within the will of the person. As Joshua told his people, choose you this day whom you will serve. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. And as Jesus says to all, come to me, I will give you rest. So he went a little further, he fell on the ground, he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. I don't even you know, want this time to come, I want it to just go past. And he said, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. 
David Guzik points out that repeatedly in the Old Testament, the cup is a powerful picture of the wrath and judgment of God. In Psalm 75 and verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. In Isaiah 51:17, he says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Jeremiah 25:15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So this cup of judgment of God, uh, and that's the cup that Jesus is facing here in the garden. You let this cup pass from me. Uh, not just the Old Testament, uh, Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. There's a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And then in Revelation 16:19, speaking of Babylon the Great, the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink from that cup. This was the source of Jesus' agony. He takes our cup of God's wrath upon himself and gives us instead the cup of his communion table, fellowship with Jesus, with the Father, and in the Holy Spirit. We may drink the cup of physical suffering, but there is nothing in it of the wrath of God. It is the fellowship of his suffering, not the fellowship of his wrath. Uh, Philippians 3.10 It's not separation from God, the God of his suffering. Well, we fellowship, it's a fellowship of his suffering, not... Um, the separation of God from God of his suffering. Should we suffer, he is there with us in the suffering, comforting and strengthening, bringing us through every drop of that cup. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. C.H. Spurgeon said, In any case, our cup can never be as deep or as bitter as was his. And there were in his cup some ingredients that never will be found in ours. The bitterness of sin was there. But he has taken that away for all who believe in him. His father's wrath was there, but he drank that all up and left not a single dreg for any one of his people. And we find this strange reality in Jesus' prayer here where he says, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The father and the son having distinctive wills. Strange reality. This may be the greatest mystery of them all. It's sort of unfathomable. The Son, in taking on a human nature, has the potential to follow His own rather than the Father's will. The crucifixion is the ultimate test of this commitment to the Father's will. 
throughout his entire life, he never placed his own will or desire above that of the Father. And yet the cross is the greatest test. How great is it? Luke 22, when he's in the garden, verse 44, it says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was the agonizing that he experienced. In Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, this is quoted in Hebrews in relation to Jesus, it says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Jesus always, always submitted his will to the will of the Father and always pleased the Father in all things. Jesus never sought to carry out his own will. He was and is the perfect example of unfallen humanity. In John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. And as He spoke these words, many believed in Him. The Father has not left me alone. We'll see in the next chapter where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does that work into this? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to that point. So here we see Jesus in great agony with this final test to be overcome. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. He was appointed by the Father. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, Jesus' flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So, uh, Jesus has something in common with Peter here. He, he uh, has vehement cries and tears to the Father who is able to save him. And he did save him from death, delivered from death. So he comes and he finds them sleeping. He says, particularly Simon. You know, you got a couple other guys there. But Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not want, watch one hour? Guzik uh, again says, Peter must have been a bit startled to hear Jesus call him Simon. This was the old sleeping Simon, not the new man, Peter. Peter was ready to resist any attack except the attack of the Sandman. And so Jesus says, watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there it is. So, um, we still have flesh. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the flesh wars against the spirit. The flesh is not just neutral. The flesh wants what it wants. And it will war against the spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, 
verse 16, he says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then he gives us a list of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. In verse 24, then he says, Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Then in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, he says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It says in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 12, he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Jesus found victory at the cross by succeeding in the struggle in Gethsemane. Peter, just like us, failed in later temptation because he failed to watch and pray. The spiritual battle is often won or lost before the crisis comes or to be prepared. Part of that preparation is seeking the Lord and being in prayer and watching. There must be preparation for battle if we are to succeed in battle. Trying to prepare when the battle is engaged most often leads to failure. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So again, he goes away. He prays once again. Uh, This prayer of Jesus, if there's any other way, then let this cup pass from me. The implied answer from the Father eliminates any other way of salvation. John 14.6, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. 
In Acts 4.12, there is not salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only this one way. No one can climb up another way. No one can take another path. There is no other path that goes to this place. We must come His way. He made the path. He blazed the trail. He is the trail that has been blazed. And when He returned, He found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer Him. And He comes this third time and says, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so, Jesus is already alone, even though his disciples are with him. And we'll see this is the only way that it can be, because he's the only one who can do what has to be done. And he can only do it alone. has to be alone. And so, we'll uh, stop there. We'll pick up with the betrayal and his arrest, his trial, so forth. Uh, Lord willing, the next time we're together.